welcome to Cinemakers, Steven Soderbergh. This is episode two, Kafka from 1991. I'm Mike Manzi. I'm Tobin Addington. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. This movie is so weird <laughs> in so many ways, both in terms of like the movie itself, but also for the fact that this is what he chose to follow up Sex, Lies, and Videotape with. Yeah, not exactly what you would call commercial or mainstream or the direction you might expect him to go next. Yeah, very, uh, very different to what I was expecting. It's funny because this is a pattern that can, is going to continue with him throughout his career. He's he's frequently going to zig when you think he's going to zag. He'll sort of have a sort of financial or artistic success in one direction and then just switch gears and or, or go to a very from a very commercial movie to a very independent movie. Uh, almost experimental sometimes. And that certainly is the case here right out of the gate. And what's kind of interesting to me is that between the time we recorded the last episode and this episode, I finished reading that Sex, Lies, and Videotape book that he wrote, his sort of his diary of pre-production, production, production, and post-production. And after he finishes the movie, and after the movie, after Sex, Lies, and Videotape starts screening and, you know, wins the Palme d'Or, and, you know, everybody pretty much loves it, He's able to get all these meetings with producers like Sidney Pollack and there are, you know, important people or whatever. And, you know, he knows the Weinsteins because I think Miramax distributed the first one. And there's all sorts of, like, possibilities for him. But even though he's 26 or whatever at the time, he's still telling people, like, what he wants to do next. And there were basically three options from what I gathered of what he might follow that up with. One is King of the Hill, which we'll do next. One is this. And one is this book called The Last Ship, which never got made. That he, you know, I read in an interview that he tried to make it and couldn't figure out the third act. And then he also said that, like, nobody was afraid of the nuclear holocaust anymore, which, you know, maybe they should make it today because there's a little bit, you know, of tensions in terms of that. But this was definitely something that he wanted to do. This was a script that Lem Dobbs had written, I think, in like 85-ish. And he read it, or maybe something, he read something else by him in 85 but this guy who wrote Hyder in the House, the crazy, insane Gary Busey movie, wrote this script, and he loved it, and they, you know, he turned it into a movie here. And then this guy, Lem Dobbs, would then go on to do other movies, like he wrote, I think, Haywire and The Limey, I think, and a couple other Soderbergh movies that we're going to be doing over the next few weeks, few months, whatever. Yeah, he's a fascinating writer. I know him mostly, well, from, besides the Soderbergh movies, mostly for Dark City which which is yep, yep. a movie that I, I just love, that has some of the same sort of, you can feel the, the neo-noir sort of stuff that he loves in this movie as well as that movie that really appeals to me, and the Limey for that matter. If you re- ever read his scripts, a lot of the script gets cut out when the movies get made, particularly by Soderbergh. And it's, so I wouldn't say they're overwritten, but they're, he has a very unusual style uh, and, and they're, they're, they're really fun to read. You can see why somebody like Soderbergh would read them and say, oh, I want to tackle this. This would be a real challenge. Well, I think Soderbergh cut this script down from like 140 pages to like 110. Jeez. And hmm. even that is probably longer because this movie is only 94 minutes long. And from what I also read, the screenwriter, like Lem Dobbs, he liked the movie, but didn't enthusiastically love it. Like he thinks Soderbergh kind of, you know, changed it a little bit too much, maybe. But I guess he didn't hold a grudge because he went on to write, you know, at least a few more movies that Soderbergh directed. So, like, they still got along, but I guess the, the final product here was not what he originally had in mind. Yeah, I think in audio commentaries will reveal down the line, they sort of have, like, a love-hate mm-hmm. relationship right. with each other, right? right? Like, <laughs> they like work, they like each other and like working with each other, but they, always, they don't always agree on everything. And, and that's, that's good, though. It makes for good art. You know, that conflict, I feel, makes for good entertainment. But this movie is interesting to me because it sort of shows off like Soderbergh's knowledge of film in a lot of ways like to like you know he said he wanted to shoot his first movie in black and white and now he is shooting it in black and white and he's kind of having lots of things his ways he's cutting down the script he's doing this and that but uh, to me this movie reminds me of two other movies a lot and one of them is Brazil, which I yep. think, you know, mm-hmm. which I hate and oh, I wow. adore. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. I only saw it once like 10 years ago. I need to watch it again, but I uh, hate it. And I've seen, I watch it like once a year. It's my fave. Um, but the the other movie this reminds me of a lot is Woody Allen's Shadows and Fog, which is mm. an homage to sort of the German expressionist movement. Mm-hmm. 
and silent film and that turning into sound and you know we're going to get names like Murnau dropped in this and I also yep, feel yep. there's lots of reference to like Caligari mm-hmm. and totally. you know all types of movies of that time Fritz Lang and things like that and Wizard of Oz even <laughs> and so it, it shows like he's showing off a lot of knowledge here and a lot of sort of technical skill and I also feel like it's pretty accessible. Yeah, the the other film that came to mind as I was watching it, in addition to all the, the German Expressionist stuff, is The Third Man, the Carol Reed movie, which is one of my favorite movies. I watched that that movie pretty religiously. And, and then, then I saw in an interview that he'd given that he, he credited that as well. Everything down to, you know, to the score feels reminiscent of that, of that movie. And there's a, there's a, a real love of cinema here, cinema history here. If, we, if, if Sex, Lives, and Videotape was sort of as much about movies and movie making as it was about Sex and Lies, then the, you know, this movie is sort of as much about the, the history of cinema, or at least sort of a, a loving homage to, the, to the history of cinema as it is about Kafka. But it's not even really about Kafka, which is weird. Like, the movie itself is, like, this blend of, like, sort of biopic and also just kind of Kafka-esque world. Like, it's not really – because he's, no, he's never named. Well, they call him they Kafka. Call him Kafka. Well, his, he, doesn't have a first, he doesn't have a first name, though. Like, it's not Franz right. Kafka. Like, this is not his life story. This is, like, yeah. sort of like a – at one point, he walks out of that club or whatever he's walking at. And they're like, what are you off to go work on? He's like, well, I'm thinking about writing a book about a man who wakes up like a giant bug. And, like, it's all stuff that – is associated with him, but it's not a pure, like, this is his life. It's just this, like, sort of weird kind of biopic, but also imagining him in a world that would exist in a book that he wrote. And apparently a lot of this is also based on a book called The Castle, which is the last thing that he was writing when he died at, like, age 40 or something of tuberculosis. And so that was never finished, or maybe it wasn't finished the way he wanted to do or whatever. It's kind of based on that. So, like, it's this weird sort of biopic, but also just weird, surreal, Brazil, Kafka-infused world of nightmares and weirdos and oddities. Yeah, I I actually really like how it it takes this sort of real-life person and makes him a caricature or, you know, you get a fictionalized version of him. It, it sort of reminds me of the movie where, like, H.G. Wells travels through time after Jack the Ripper, you know? <laughs> like, you take a historical figure, but you mm. play him in, like, a completely uh, made-up context. Or, like, you make him a fictional character and take it from, take liberties with that. And I think it works pretty well. I don't, I haven't read, a, I'm not familiar with a lot of Kafka. I mean, I've read The Metamorphosis and there's like a passing reference to that in here. Uh, so I wasn't really picking up on much more than just the sense of sort of the every man getting entangled in a web of ever-deepening intrigue, which sort of is like this, what's sort of referred to, I guess, as Kafka-esque now in, in a lot of ways. Like, you know, when a this every man is sort of in over his head and it's the system is so big and against I mean I was sort of picking up more on just those bigger themes in general I mean I also think that there's in a way like this movie can be about filmmaking too you know like the idea of the industry hierarchy mm. and getting your ideas through and you know there's a big theme here where people don't want you to think for yourself and have big ideas and show off and you know it's always it's much more just step in line and do what you're told and I think this movie explores more sort of subverting the system right and Soderbergh is going to be doing that a lot throughout his career. I hadn't thought about that the metaphor of the system here being the studio system or or the independent system that's that's really fascinating that I buy that as a sort of reading of the film. And, and it's, you know, it, it feels to me like they've sort of taken the world of Kafka's stories and put Kafka, the writer, in that world, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And, and so to, to my mind, it's, it's sort of more interesting than a straight up biopic would be because you're sort of you're nodding if you know Kafka if you know his history if you know his works and I, I know I've read more than the metamorphosis but not a lot more um, but but I, enough to pick up you know references here and there and and conversations he'll have with people and I'm like oh I, I think I learned that that he actually had a similar experience where he told some person to burn all his manuscripts and that person didn't you know that those sorts of things that that clearly they've they have they're nodding to his biography but they're sort of putting him in the world of the trial or the castle or metamorphosis where weird stuff happens and where the system is sort of 
um, the system itself is is almost abstract to the point of being bizarre, and, and that to me, I I, I, I kind of like that approach to to telling a story about a real character. Yeah, I definitely agree. And one other thing that I read that I didn't think about when I was watching was that a comparison between this film and sort of, you know, I guess the the reading that you want to put on, or maybe the reading that Soderbergh wants you to put on it, between this film and Sex Lies, is that both protagonists, uh, Kafka in this one and James Spader in the last one, said they both star a protagonist that's alienated and bewildered from and by the world. And they both kind of hide behind things, and like, it's just, it's sort of like the world, like they don't, like the world doesn't understand them, they don't understand the world. Mm. It's not a comparison that I drew, because it's, it feels like such a different movie, but when you break it down to its mm-hmm. essence, you try to figure out who this main guy is. There are comparisons there. Yeah, that makes sense. I like that that idea. They they do feel of a piece in that way, and that feels like something that uh, is maybe. You I mean we don't know if it's autobiographical to to Soderbergh, but if we if we take as a given that he sort of speaks cinema, that he can sort of speak the language of of movies, both making them and watching them in a way that a lot of people can't right out of the gate, you know, in their 20s, then then he, I wonder if he feels some alienation, you know, like, like he's, he can sort of speak a language the rest of us can't as fluently, which is, I don't know, it's, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, and I wonder maybe if this movie came a little too early in his career, like watching it, I was thinking to myself, like, not that you can't make this for your second movie, but it just doesn't it feels like it's made by someone who's made a lot of movies already uh-huh. and is sort of comfortable just like doing something out of the box. And so I almost wonder if just it blindsided people and they were like, whoa, like I just he's he was so hip and modern in his last film. And now it's like he's very academic, it seems. And people are sort of like, is he being too sort of esoteric here? Is he getting away from the nerve, you know, the mainstream, like what people really dug about his earlier work. And I, I think you're right in a way that he's sort of telling a similar story in a completely different way, right? Like, I mean, it's still, there's those same themes of like alienation and are definitely present in, in both film and trying to change and like this main character transforming. Here, it's a little more of a cryptic ending, I guess. I actually didn't find this movie to be it's weird, but I didn't get lost in any way. It's not really like a mystery puzzle per se that you would think it is. It, it, it kind of presents itself at one, but I think it's much more basic than it looks on the surface in here. And so I don't know. I just I, I have a feeling that maybe it was just misunderstood when it came out. We have a thing in screenwriting that we often talk about trying to write something simple but complex, where the basic underlying theme the idea of sort of what the character's after or maybe it's maybe it's that the plot itself is is um you know should be sort of clear and then you can sort of embroider that with whatever you want that's something that lem dobbs does really well i think if you think about the other movies that he has that he's either he and soderbergh have done or he's done outside of that that very often that the story itself is incredibly simple you know it's it's you know one character trying to achieve or figure out one thing and sort of moving from from place to place to do it, and then within that, the world then can be as um, you know bizarre or interesting or confrontational or you know formalist as you want it to be. And and I think it allows you to do that if you if the story that you're telling itself is actually pretty simple. I also think maybe it just it being in black and white in the '90s. But he could have also been a strike against it, too. I mean, he's going to try. What's interesting to me is he's going to he won't really let this deter him in a lot of ways. Like he'll come back to the he'll come back and do a movie, The Good German, which he'll it takes place during the 40s and he'll only use equipment that was available at the time (laughs) to shoot that movie. So it's like he'll do what he wants. And that's kind of great that he is going to survive this. And I think it's because he's smart and he knows that he won't do this again for a while. He tested this one and it's it didn't really get a lot of traction from what I know. And I mean, it's kind of got a bit of a cult status now, but for the most part, I don't think he'll reemerge for a couple more years in the mainstream, like three or four movies down the line to sort of get him back into place. I don't want to say that the black and white in the 90s is a strike against him. What I think might be a strike against him in that regard is just, like, how much at times this feels like a movie from the 30s? Like, it's crazy. Like, it's not all... It doesn't all feel old. Some of it feels modern, but the way that, like, it's certain camera mm-hmm. angles yeah. and, like, the lighting, and especially Cliff Martinez back again for the second film in a row with the score, 
like the music that he makes, like a lot of this feels like it's an 80 year, like, or I guess at the time it'd be like a 60 year old movie. Like it's crazy. And then there's sometimes, you know, it gets a little bit like there's some camera stuff that feels a little bit more modern. I'm not sure if that's for a specific reason. And then toward the end of the movie, when they enter the castle and it just becomes color, like that's obviously a whole other bag of worms that we'll get into in a little bit. But it's crazy how old this feels like. And it's like, it's done in a way that, you know, this guy who is now 28 or whatever has this mastery, like you were saying earlier, Tobin. He's like, he can speak cinema. Like, it's it's amazing, his ability to create something that feels like it's decades old. Like, you can, you know, I feel like nowadays you sort of see that when, like, a horror film feels like it comes from the 70s mm-hmm. or the 80s. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's cool. But that is different because that's still like you're still using the same kind of equipment i feel like and still like film has changed a lot since then but like comparing from the 30s to the 90s like that's huge and to make a movie like this especially as your second movie and have it feel like it comes like it's like a fritz lang movie like wow yeah it's sort of like somebody writes a a best-selling novel and then for their second novel they they write something in middle english you know it's like that's kind of English and I can kind of understand it, but what the hell are you doing? No one writes, no one speaks in these, in this way anymore. And you can decipher it and you can get used to it, but it's, it's, it's not sort of easy to digest the way that the, you know, the first book was. One of the things that I think is what happens to Soderbergh sometimes is there are, there are movies that he makes that appeal more to the intellect than to the heart that maybe are a little more, little, a little too cerebral for an American film audience, which I don't mean as a as a dig on American film audiences or, or or anything. Just, but just that there's a, you know, we want certain, we want movies to provide us with cer- with certain things in general more than than some other cultures do, and we expect cinema to come come to us. <laughs> we don't expect to have to engage with it as much, and yet, and yet, I think we often like it when we when when films make us engage a little bit. I think you have to engage with sex lies a little. Bit. I think you have to sort of step into that movie um, a bit. This movie, you got to step real close to, <laughs> as far as you know, movies in the in the early '90s were. And um, maybe it may have been a little a little esoteric, a little intellectual uh, for you know for '91. It almost feels like he's still trying to find himself a little. I mean, clearly we're at the beginning of his career. I mean, for and he's super confident in it, but this almost feels like a genre film in a weird way, right? Like it's not per se, but it kind of is in a Soderbergh mm-hmm. kind of way yeah, sure. to me, you know, like it's a noir the way he would do it or something. And the way he would do it would be in Europe, you know, 50 years ago, that's <laughs> where he wants to set his noir. Uh, and he'll do, you know, like Haywire will be his version of sort of an action movie. And he'll do his horror film with the with the virus. Contagion. Contagion. Exactly, yeah. So, I mean, he he has his very unique stamp on these genres, and he'll just do it the Soderbergh way. And I think that's refreshing. I just can't understand how he keeps getting away with it is what baffles me, you know? <laughs> like, that he could be so experimental and, you know, not make a whole lot of money on one thing and yet still get backing for the next thing i mean the guy must be an, an incredible salesman too you know <laughs> if he could just like get, get you raise money for anything that he wanted forget about film but like <laughs> uh, yeah but i guess what i'm getting at is that maybe this was just too much too soon it, it is very much more for sort of the film school crowd or the the crowd that likes you know turner classics maybe or older films or even older people uh but I don't think at the time that this this was selling anywhere, you know, in, in, in any style. It's just, it's unfortunate that no one wanted it, but I'm glad that it exists now, then we can watch it now and enjoy it. I think one reason why he's able to make, or keep making movies, maybe, and I don't know how big of a deal this is really, but in that Sex Lies book, he talks about how he came in under budget and under time. And, you know, in a world that's like people spending money that they don't have or whatever, especially for his first movie to do all that. And then he's also the like, you know, being the one who edits his movies and stuff. So he's able to be this like one man crew kind of or at least, you know, with help on the back end. But he's able to do these things for the money that people say that they're going to pay him and in the time frame that they want it in. And so I think with those alone, like if you're making stuff that even if it's not well received, like this is sort of, I think it has like a 57 or something percent on Rotten Tomatoes, like it's kind of mixed at best. Even if you're making stuff like that, like if you're able to create stuff within budget and in time and you have this, especially the 
the smash hit of the first movie, I think you'll get a few more chances possibly. Yeah, that's true. And you know, nobody I think who would, would be putting money into this movie, right? He, he comes out of sex, uh, comes out of can his one can he's huge at Sundance. The, the sex size videotape is this huge thing. And then like, what do you want to do next? Oh, I want to make this Kafka movie as you know impressive as this one movie track record has been so far nobody is going to i I can't imagine that people put their money into kafka thinking this is going to be a huge hit you know the investment was had to have been modest enough um that you know if he if he can come in on time and on budget with a movie of this size then the chances of him getting to make another one in the 90s are pretty good especially given the success of sex size and videotape i think that's a that's a great point the problem that people run into today so often is that you, your first movie is some little indie movie that, that does really well, maybe not quite as well as Sex Lies, but it does really well, and then they dump you into a studio movie. You go to make some kind of giant studio movie, and maybe it turns out great, like uh, the Jurassic World experience did for Colin Trevorrow, or maybe you, you flame out and, you know, won't, won't name names, but, but you know, and everything's over, and you're sort of done, or you're in director jail for 10 years, or whatever. And I think that you're right. I think picking one of the really smart things that, that he did in picking this movie as his next project is that it had to have been modestly budgeted enough that people going into it did not expect it to be a blockbuster, you know, um, and they undoubtedly factored that into the, their calculations. Yeah, and I think it also shows off, like we've been saying a bit, uh, he's got the technical abilities to do stuff that isn't as loose, per se, as Sex Lies, right? So, like, a studio executive can look at Kafka and be like, all right, he can do these sweeping crane shots, he can obey the rules of the screen in a way. Like, he's, you know, like, he... He knows what he's doing. I think like this is really good for an artist's reel to show someone and be like, "Oh, look! Like he has patience here. Like he can get it done, and he's but yet he's efficient, and he can get it done quickly, and he can get it done well." This is quite a showpiece to have in your pocket. Yeah, there's a there's a scene in the movie where Kafka is sneaking around in the office where he works after hours, and this. We'll find out who he is later, but it's some kind of madman that we that we know is, is a killer. <laughs> um, sort of surprises him and smashes into the building and chases him. And there's this really, I think, effective chase sequence that ends with with him caught it with with Kafka thinking he's getting away in an elevator and then getting trapped. And you know that's that's a a section you could pluck out and and as a studio executive or a producer, imagine giving money to Soderbergh to make another movie that included scenes like that. You know, like he can do that kind of stuff. He could do sort of pulse poundy action or chase sequence at least in this movie that demonstrates that right and in a way that sex lies didn't and i think there there are other things like that there's some physical humor in here with kafka has these two assistants these brother assistants who have these i thought hysterical moments kind of in the background uh, where you don't quite know what they're doing and then they do these absurd funny things and uh, jeremy irons who we haven't mentioned who plays kafka sort of barely looks at them you know or and it's just sort of a, a funny thing for us. Anyway, he's able to do to juggle a lot of different tones and a different and different kind of styles in here. Mike, you're right that 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 would probably show people, you know, that that he's capable of a of a lot of different things. One thing I did sort of I've seen, I've only seen this movie once before about like seven or eight years ago. But one thing I really forgot about is the performances. Like you were saying about the clerks, how different they act compared to like Kafka, and how different he acts compared to the, the girl. I mean, everybody is just seems so uh, in their character or of their character and that they feel genuine in, unto themselves. Like, I don't get the sense that anybody's forcing anything out here. Everyone just seems to know who they're playing very well so that they can get really good performances out of everybody. And I can't believe... Alec Guinness was in this movie either and that Soderbergh directed Obi-Wan yeah. Kenobi and that just blew my mind while I was watching this. Um, and he gets a great performance out of him too. Must have been one of his final performances uh, probably, but I didn't, I mean I just recognized the voice and then put the face to it and everything, but he plays one of uh, Kafka's bosses there and, uh, you know, definitely in league with the higher ups but yeah, I just I just thought that like really really fun to watch this time like not just is it visually you know entertaining but the interactions between people were good too yeah we've talked we talked last time about how Soderbergh gets such good performances the actors often want to work with him you know if for no other reason than he's then he can get things out of them that, that other directors maybe can't I think the one exception in this movie to my mind is the actress who plays the love interest, who plays the the woman that he's friends with and sort of in love with in the movie, Gabriella. And 
I, I don't know this actress from other things. Teresa Russell is her name. I, I don't know that I will, I've seen her in anything or that I would really seek her out in anything. But to my mind, in this movie, she feels too sort of contemporary and is kind of wooden in a role that I think yes. could have been much more... Uh, um, I don't know. I don't know what oh. damsel in distressy, like old timey, like yeah, more alive somehow. Yeah, yeah I... she she kind of feels like Keanu in some of those weird period oh, pieces that he did, where right. he just doesn't fit of the time. He's just like, oh, that's Keanu Reeves as sort of like that surfer California affectation. She can't like deliver the lines in like the sort of maybe stilted way is not the way to say it, but like there's a certain cadence and a patter that old-timey movies that the actors used to speak in. And I feel like everybody in this movie, for the most part, is nailing it except for her, and she's just not... I don't even know if she's not... I don't even know if she's trying. Like, it just... It's so far off base. And I feel like she's also moving, like, physically moving in a way that doesn't match the rest of the mm-hmm. people in this movie either. Like, she... I mean, she looks the part. She just doesn't act or feel like it's the right fit here. Yeah, that's a great point. She's just not of the time. I don't believe that she's part of this world in a way that everybody else in the movie, yeah, whether I know they're Brits, you know, I know they're Obi-Wan Kenobi or whatever, they, they, they're they all feeling of a piece of a time in the movie. And, and she just, she just to me, just sticks out as, as not part of the world and not in a good way, not in an interesting way. You can imagine sort of playing with something like that with a character who's of the world but not. And that's not what's happening with her. It's, I just don't think it works very well. And she's so different that when I was watching this, I was kind of expecting it to get weird in a way, and I had no idea how it was going to get weird when he gets into the castle and things radically shift into sort of like a completely different type of everything. But she was so different from everybody else that I kind of thought that, like, that was for a purpose, that she was, it was going to be some kind of, like, not like time jump or something, but like that she was going to be like not from that era. And like that was going to be some kind of like weird thing there because I'd never seen this before. So I was trying to figure out why that was so off and there's no reason for it. It's just that's what she did for the movie. Yeah, that would have been interesting. I agree. I am agree. I do agree with you guys about that. And it's unfortunate because she's her little resistance group all are like these little different types of people, right? Like there's one guy, the mad, the briefcase bomber who looks like the shadow for crying out loud with like the big hat and the scarf and everything. And he's just like bon appetit and blows them up. And uh, when Kafka follows them sort of back to their little lair and everything, like everybody sort of looks kind of weird for themselves, you know, like they all got their own little thing going on. And it's unfortunate that hers doesn't really play as much as everybody else. I mean, no, no, no one else in that little inner circle, really, we don't really follow them off a screen as much either like we come back and they're all murdered you know they're really sort of thrown away but i think they're there to illustrate a point is that they're radicals and that they they might they don't fit the status quo so they aren't going to act and seem like the rest of the people in the movie you know that are part of the system that are you know asleep but you know like (laughs) i guess (laughs) kafka is neo (laughs) he needs to wake up at one point and these are you know the agents like they are the people trying to wake him right the resistance and so i think it's interesting that they all have like their own little look but it's unfortunate that yeah that that hers didn't apply as well well what makes it extra weird is that when we see her in the movie like i think it i don't know if it's maybe the, it's either the first scene that we see her or one of the first scenes or a couple of the first scenes the camera follows her like it tracks her in a way that hadn't been done up to that point in the movie and it's like this woman's important like pay attention mm-hmm. to her and then it doesn't pay off it just feels like, there's an opportunity there, whether it was intended or not, and it just didn't work, which is disappointing because, like, everything else here was done for a reason. Whether you think it, like, worked or not, like, it was all, it's all very clear, like, this is why that was done that way. But here, I just, I just don't get it. Yeah, maybe if she was the one strapped to the giant machine at the end when he bursts into the, you know, into the operating room, like, that might have been a better payoff instead of just seeing her, you know, he goes into some other room and she's being tortured behind a wall that he can't tell and then the next time we see her she's in the morgue not breathing so you're right they do set her up don't really pay her off the movie sort of i don't know if it's if she's a red herring per se or if she's just there to get him into the rest of the plot like you know if she's just like a gateway to get him to the castle to you know just so that he takes action as it were and that's all she's really there for 
but it would have been nice to have a cleaner resolution for her and them and him at some some point somehow. If part of the arc for Kafka in this movie is that he's a guy that that spends a lot of time alone, you know, he hears this from from Alec Guinness, I think, at one point talks about how, or maybe it's Joel Gray, but they're talking about how they worry that he's that he has no, um, he doesn't like hang out with people after work, right? He just goes home and writes, <laughs> and and that that he's not social. He's sort of antisocial or asocial. And if we're to believe that then the arc of this movie is this guy who sort of just keeps to himself by the end of the movie is going to be sneaking in with a bomb to like the, like he's going to become a full fledged, like resistance freedom fighter guy that then she's, it's the connection with her that is meant to be the thing that draws him in, right? We see in the opening of the movie, this guy gets killed and it's a guy who turns out to have been a few desks over from Kafka. And you get the sense that if she had not brought him into the resistance, he would have just, oh, thought that was very odd that this guy had was gone and wondered where he was. And then he goes to the morgue to see him and sees that he's dead and things seem odd and peculiar, but he wouldn't have you know, chased after it. So if she's the white rabbit to in the and he's Alice in Alice in Wonderland, I need to believe that they have a real connection. And you're right, Joey, the movie's telling us through the shots that she's important, that she's vital, that she has this this connection to him, and then that's gonna draw him into this this whole web of conspiracy. But her performance does not match what, what Soderbergh's doing with the camera. And it's just such a bummer because like in that Sex Lies book Soderbergh talks about how James Spader, after he saw the final version of Sex Lies, said, you cut together my best performance, which he said, like, is the best thing you can hear as a director. And he's got this, like, rapport with actors, and, like, he can, you know, even though he's young and he doesn't really have this experience in the industry, he's able to get things out of these actors. He's working with, you know, these legends, like we were talking about earlier, like, you know, Alec Guinness and Jeremy Irons and... People are asking him, like, are you intimidated to work with these people? He's like, no, like, they're actors. Like, this is their job. Like, they're going to show up and they're going to do their thing. But he's able to get from them these performances. I just don't know what happened with her. Like, it's such a weird black hole of – or a white hole, really, because she's wearing the white dress. Like, you know, like this, this, this weird absence of, like, everything. Yeah, and it stands out more so, I think, because he's so good with the other actors. And, and Jeremy Irons is probably a, an actor that you can just turn on and let go in a movie and he'll just be pretty phenomenal. I mean, he feels like that kind of, you know, a British actor who's come up with some, you know, partly through the British system and partly in, in American film and likely does like a lot of actors do. Um, a British British trained actors do does the same thing perfectly over and over and over again. You know, he's like trained to, to do it that way. And I clearly... I just think she was miscast. I, I don't I don't think it's hard for me to fault Soderbergh on it since he was able to get the performance out of Annie McDowell that he did the last movie and knowing what's coming with him and actors. So but you're right, it's just it's it's a real shame. Can we talk about how the movie goes from black and white to color? <laughs> yes. Yes. I was reading about this because I was just like, I, I literally looked down to like write something in my notes or whatever, and I looked up and all of a sudden we were in color. Like I missed him opening that huh. door. I'm like, wait, what what did I just miss? that it's all of a sudden in color. And it's not only in color, it's like we went from the 30s to the 80s. Like, there's, like, weird sort of, you know, science vials. Like, it feels like Frankenhooker or, like, it just, it's this weird, like, very modern, you know, scientists doing crazy things. There's that guy, you know, the big eye through that, like, I don't I don't even know how to describe it. Like, it's just, like, everything is bizarre. Um, and I was just like, what happened here? I had to rewind a little bit and be like, oh, okay, I see what's happening now. <laughs> Yeah, the way I sort of took it was we are sort of stepping into the future a little here in the castle. Like, we were in the sort of 20s and 30s style, and now we're more into, like, the 50s and 60s even. And, and we've crossed genres into, like, a sci-fi film now in a, in a lot of ways. I feel like it's going to be – there's going to be a, references to sci-fi stuff coming up, which is really great. And I even got a bit of a, like, a vibe of, like, the Prisoner television show. Oh, yeah. Getting all kinds of, like, mod sort of stuff, too. And yeah, I just, it's really kind of interesting how the third act just, like, opens up and it's not, and, like, the color seems to be for a reason. Like, it's not just like, oh, like, what if I just switch the movie to color now <laughs> just because? And it's like, no, like, I, I honestly feel like the castle is the future and he has stepped within to the future and now he's going to witness and take that back with him and can he handle that or not? I'm not sure if he, if, if, he's, if he can handle what he's about to see. That's kind of fascinating because, you know, Kafka's writing is is so... 
as I remember learning about it, felt so very modern, sort of shockingly modern at the time, that, that maybe ahead of its time as it was being written. And, and that if, you know, what, what sort of damage might that have done to him as a, just to his soul or whatever, right? Like maybe he had a glimpse of the future in some way. I had, and you're right, there's a real 60s vibe, which is going to turn up in a lot of Soderbergh movies. Like he loves that, that time period in film. And uh, yeah, I hadn't put that all, that all together. I like that. I like that take. It also feels like the castle, like I read this somewhere too, that the castle is kind of like Oz, like that's sort of this magic castle where Kansas is black and white and then all of a sudden we Dorothy gets to Oz and everything's in color. Like here it's just this other world kind of thing, this, you know, foreign land of sorts. And it also, I mean, a castle, like it looks sort of like Oz in a way, kind of. Mm-hmm. And it's like just this- city. Yeah. 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 It's just weird. I mean, it's weird in a good way, though. Like, it's I, sometimes I say weird in like a I don't understand, I don't like it way, but like this is like weird in a good way. So I want to make that clear. I feel like the movie was building toward a reveal that it couldn't avoid, and it needed to have an impact somehow. And I feel like this is a good one. You know, he eventually gets into a room and he sees a man hooked up to a giant machine, and they're carving up his mind, and they're basically rewiring people to do whatever they want them to do and make sure they can't think for themselves and go out into the world and kill this person and kill that person covertly and like real New World Order type stuff like pulling strings and and things behind the curtain uh, which I think is another Oz reference you know that you have like these men behind the curtain and they're trying to control the world and it's all just a facade and 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 it's all gonna come crashing down well or at least he's gonna survive it won't all he won't necessarily bring this system down but he will survive his encounter with the men in charge he also talked about how and i'm not sure if i buy this because i don't know if i can really think about this it kind of makes sense to me but about how like typically in films dreams are in black and white and here, it's kind of a reversal of that, that like reality is in black and white and this dreamland's kind of in color. I don't know if that's true or not. Like, I feel like when I think about dreams in movies, I think about sort of hypersaturation or like vivid colors or like things are different. But I don't know if I get dreams in black and white. That I'm not sure if that makes sense to me. Does that, does that ring true to either of you? There's a thing that happened as color was coming to movies where for a while, color was the scene as fantasy, as as unreality or as, at least as unserious, right? So you would have sort of lavish musicals and, and, and things like that in color. And and for a while, the quote-unquote serious you know dramas would be in black and white, that it was seen sort of that way. And then eventually that switched a, a little bit. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know that I ever, would ever think of dreaming as in black and white. I guess maybe fantasy sequences or, you know, the movie that comes to mind that switches back and forth black and white and color is the the Kenneth Branagh movie Dead Again, which I don't know what year that would have been. That would have been in the 90s at some point. Um, but that's a movie where there's a two character or a bunch of characters actually who are or have past lives. And we, we keep moving back and forth between the present in LA and the past and seeing the same characters play themselves in the past. And the past is in black and white in that movie. And, that, and oh, it's 91. It's the same year. It's the same year. And that's a, so as a device, in that case, they're using one as sort of the as sort of the dream. You have to go into hypnosis to see what's hap- was happening in your past life. But yeah, I don't know. I, I hadn't I had never put that together. I think I like Mike's take better than it, that it's the future. Yes. <laughs> Memento was half black and white too, right? Wasn't it? Oh, yeah, I haven't yeah, seen yeah. Memento in a while. Yeah. But- yeah. Yeah, when he's on the phone, yes. Yeah, I, I didn't. I haven't heard that about dreams either. But I don't know. The more I think about it, I just also feel like the the castle might represent, you know, the truth, right? He's gonna like find out the answers, or at least it's supposed to. And you know, anytime a character finds out the truth about something, I feel like their senses are heightened, or their sense of awareness has been heightened, and thus he's gone from black and white to color. Mm. He's sort of at another level of consciousness at this point, maybe in that he's about to be privy to information that is extremely secretive and is going to change his perspective on the world. And I also think it's kind of funny that he and I mean, at least to me, it feels like he does reject that because he goes back into the black and white world towards the end of the movie here. And back to his office, right? He goes back into his old life in a way. And there was a, you know, as he's walking into Alec Guinness's office at the end of the movie and Alec Guinness says, you were, it's a funny thing, you were called up to the castle and then also told, then told not to come, you know? And, and there, there's a sort of, as he's walking in to the office, I, I don't know how you guys felt. I was feeling like, what, what's going to happen, right? Because 
Alec Guinness is in on something. He at least knows that nefarious stuff is going on at the castle. And like, is he just surrendering or what, what's sort of happening? And it, you do get the sense like his life is going to get the sense he's going to die of TB, right? Because he's coughing at the end into the bloody right, uh, right, coughing right. blood right up at the end. And you're like, oh, my God. And knowing if you know that Kafka died young of, of tuberculosis, then you sort of sort of see maybe how that's how that's coming. But yeah, it's yeah, it's interesting. So what's kind of interesting about the timeline is that originally in the script, I don't know if it was the original Lem Dobbs script or the sort of the first pass that Soderbergh took edit or whatever, was that the events of the film were going to take place over like the span of like four or five days, but they condensed it to be sort of like a day and then like the next day, like basically sort of a day and a half. Mm. And one of the big things that he pointed out was that the elevator scene, when he gets attacked by that madman guy or whatever... Like, in the original script or whatever whatever version of the script, he just showed back up to work the next day, and people were like, well, why would he do that? Like, if he just got, like, attacked in the elevator, like, why would <laughs> yeah. he go back to work? Yeah. So it, it makes – it works better that way. But, yeah, at the end, when he does go back to work, it's like, oh, like, now what? Yeah. Doesn't Alec going to say something like, it, it's just another day? <laughs> <laughs> and then what is that really – I'm not sure what that's supposed to imply, but I guess he, you can try to fight the system, but ultimately he's just one man and, you know – how much damage can he really do? I'm sure they rebuilt the room that he bombed within 24 hours anyway. <laughs> you know, everyone's back onto their merry ways and what they were doing. I don't necessarily get the sense that what he did accomplished much. You know, I mean, maybe it changed him. I won't say it didn't accomplish anything. Like, he, you know, he has had a, uh, it has had a profound effect on him, but he hasn't really, you know, no one else is aware of the conspiracy and he's going to die off with the, you know, with his knowledge of what happened and everything is just going to keep going along. Well, and I wonder too, and if this is, given that the movie's about conspiracies and about um, sort of for you sort of not quite sci-fi, well, maybe it's like sci-fi, like medical experiments like going on, that if they gave him TB, I mean, the movie does not give me any clue that that's happened. But if you, you know, either metaphorically, the knowledge of all this, having seen all this is going to kill him, like he can't live in this world, or that it like was part of some experiment. Yeah, it's, it's like I say, it's not in the movie, but there's a, I think the movie asks you to sort of read, especially as you, as you say, when it gets to the point when it switches into color, it wants you to start engaging with it on the level of what, why is this happening? What does this mean? What's the explanation for, for all this? That's what I meant earlier when I said sometimes movies make you come to them a little bit more to fully appreciate them. And I feel like that's definitely what's going on here in the last act of this movie. Yeah, and I think this movie benefits from repeat viewings to to tell the truth. Like watching this a second time, not knowing exactly what happened, but having a good sense, you know, a good feel of it. I I enjoyed it more because I was ready to acclimate myself to the movie, I suppose. You know, I knew what kind of movie I was getting into. And then I kind of had time to go through it for part of a third time afterwards. Like, I actually do enjoy uh, this one, and I do feel like this is one that I'm going to watch again. And also on, like, repeat viewing, because I, I watched part of, like, I sort of, after I finished, I kind of went back to the middle-ish, like, at, like, half an hour in and just sort of watched the middle half hour again. And you, you also are able to pick up on, like, the background stuff, like the, the twins and, you know, like, one of the, my favorite little moments that I missed the first time was when they're with the typewriters and, like, the one guy, like, winds the paper and all of a sudden it winds up in the other guy's typewriter. Like, it, he, like, winds it enough that, it, like, it feeds into the other one. It's just, like, these little yeah. – or, like, that they're just, like, jockeying back and forth in the chairs. Like, for no reason. Like, there's no purpose to it. It's just, back like, funny background things. Like, almost like – like, that feels modern in a way that if you watch, like, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, for instance, there's the action. There's, like, funny stuff happening in the, in the foreground. But then you watch characters in the background who are having their own – like, they're the stars of their own little world. And they're doing things that have nothing to do with anything, but they're just, like – they're they're insane in the background there. So it's it's this tradition of the important thing that you want to focus on is in the foreground, but if you're attentive enough or you watch it a second time or whatever to notice the background, you're going to be rewarded further than if you were just paying attention to whoever's speaking at that time. Yeah, that's a really good point. And in it and you know, we haven't we've talked a little bit about what German expressionism is. It has a lot to do with the mise en scène of the movie to throw out a, a fancy film term. Um Ooh. I'm surprised it took us almost two episodes to get into I know. I know. Uh, how many podcasts have we done? Uh, I've not, not thrown that word around. But it, when we say that, what we talk about is all the physical stuff in front of the camera, right? So it's the sets, the costumes, the makeup, the actors, the way they move, the lighting. And in German expressionism, the idea is that you're, you're paying particular attention to the mise-en-scene and using it in, in less realistic ways. You're exaggerating the mise-en-scene in order to sort of um, get at what the inner psychology of the character is. And you have – you're right. You're totally right. 
paying attention to the background in this, in this movie is hugely rewarding. And it's clearly something Soderbergh's done on, on purpose, either either in terms of the what the sets are, the locations, or as you say, the little business that the actors have in the background, whether it's funny or menacing or, or whatever, or even the shadows on the wall, right? Like the opening kill scene tells you exactly the, the era this movie's coming out of, because it's got this great sort of shadow approach before the character shows up, which gives him all this menace and us our fear. So yeah, this is it's he's, he's meticulous in his use of, of what's going on in the background of this movie. One of my favorite shots is where the resistance meets in this attic and the floor is sort of this window and it looks like a web. It's like this window web of just black and white. It's just gorgeous. And it's in the movie. Like there's a couple shots of it. And I was like, wow, that's just that's just awesome. I mean, yeah, it's just something ripped right out of that era. Um, and I also think about the clerks. What they do, too, is like they provide the levity, right? Like this comedy that you kind of need a little bit. Like this movie, it's not like super serious, really, but it is like a who killed this guy, like get to the bottom of and then turns into this conspiracy thing. And so it's nice to have these characters who serve a purpose. Like, yeah, they're his clerks, but it's okay that they're inept and that they're like the the comedy because they represent, you know, the bureaucracy and the and his employment and just how sort of ridiculous and comedic like it can be working within the system and all that and so like obviously like these guys have a job you know doing something important and they can't even uh, wind a typewriter uh, and they and they also sort of reminded me of like Chaplin or the Three Stooges or something else out of that time era that that doesn't feel out of place within the boundaries of these of this world and it also shows that Soderbergh's got good comic timing mm-hmm. I feel like really not just like good timing with geography or like the camera movement and placement and all that but yeah like he's actually eliciting laughs for me as well as I'm watching this thing so one thing I think we talked about last episode we might have talked about it off mic I don't remember if we recorded it or not but we were talking about how Soderbergh likes to like he would put stuff on his website you know he like remix movies or whatever we're talking about or you know how we cut that one thing down from four hours to one hour and he's got this like really he's just sort of like here's my stuff like do with it what you will or like just I just want to like put stuff on my website this entire movie is on YouTube and it's really kind of the only way that you can watch it in the U.S. Like, there's not a really a U.S. DVD release, I don't think, because um, I bought all the stuff for this podcast and I couldn't find it, but it's on YouTube. And one reason it might be on YouTube is because the rights recently in the last like five or six years reverted to Steven Soderbergh. And so he owns the rights again. So maybe he's okay with being up mm-hmm, there. Mm-hmm. But one thing that I read was that when they were shooting side effects – they shot insert shots during that for this, and they're toying around with the idea. This is at least from a 2013 interview, so I mean, I don't know if it's actually going to happen or not, but that they were toying with the idea of releasing a, quote, completely different version of the movie. And so they were shooting new stuff and rewriting stuff, and they might, you know, this might get a U.S. release, like a new DVD release at some point, because now that he has the rights again, he might, like, tweak it and make it different and... So that'd be kind of interesting to see how it modernizes, you know, almost, you know, by the time, if it comes out in a couple of years, like almost 30 years later. Yeah, that would be awesome. I, I had to get the German, like, Region 4 or 2 or something copy of this that I had, but I think that would be grounds for re-release, and absolutely. And, and I don't think that's, again, that's not outside of what he's done before, because doesn't, there's like two cuts on the girlfriend experience. Mm-hmm. Um like there's the theatrical cut and there's the hey I decided to just do a completely like new director's <laughs> cut for the DVD which is all out of order it's like a, entirely different takes and all kinds of like extra footage yeah so I mean that would be great I, I would love to see just like a, a remixed Kafka that's all I have to say about this movie anything else that we wanted to talk about before we close up shop for the day oh, only to say that I wrote at the end of my notes on this movie I said I kind of love this movie it is weird, and I don't think it entirely works. I think there are problems with it. I, I would love to see what he would do with it now. I, I think that would be fascinating to see what he would change if he could go back and tweak stuff. But you have to admire it. You have to admire the the guts it takes to go on your second movie and, and make an homage to, 
German expressionist movies of the 19-teens, let alone in the 30s, let alone eventually the 60s. Like, this is this is a real, you know, I hate to use the word brave because, like, people are brave in real life in big ways. But it's a risk. He takes a real risk making this movie as his second movie. And I think that it, for me, it really pays off. Like, it demonstrates exactly the kind of filmmaker this guy is going to be. And I'm, I will definitely watch this again. Yeah, I may watch it again, like, tomorrow. Probably not, but maybe. Who knows? <laughs> Mike, any last thoughts, or are we sort of closing up the book on Kafka? Not oh, That's a terrible pun. I didn't even think about that. I didn't mean to do that. Uh, the one guy I wanted to mention that we didn't talk about was uh, Kafka's favorite, his biggest admirer in this was the, the masonry guy, the stonecutter. Who, oh, yeah. Um, helps him sneak into the castle, but, like, it saves his life at one point. Just, like, always kind of in, shows up to encourage Kafka. At one point, I almost wondered if he was just imaginary because he's the only guy in the movie who's, like, saying he likes his work and to keep going and that you're doing fine. But I, I really enjoyed that guy. Uh, that was a really funny character, too. The other thing, too, is, you know, I think this movie comes from a place that warrants a recut more than something like, say, the Star Wars saga, right? Like, this, at its roots, just feels much more experimental, like a, not a student film, but like a academic project or just something to say, I can do this. Like, this is what I want to do at this time, and I want to see if I'm capable, and I feel like he's more than capable. And if also, if you can sort of master what was done early on at the beginning, then you can master anything, you know? Like, if he has complete control over the tools that made so many great films, you know, like we said, like The Third Man or M or Nosferatu, mm-hmm. Metropolis, right, right. go even further back, you know? Like, those are the tools that he, are, he is working with here, uh, best he can for the time he's living in. And he is right along there with them, you know, as far as I am concerned. I feel like he's, like, showing he can master the craft, and I just feel like from here on, like, he'll be capable of pretty much whatever he wants to do. So I hope that's the stuff people want to see, because he's just, like, constantly going to do what he wants. I mean, I was looking at, like, what's coming up next, and, like, we've got a couple more that I'm not familiar with as much, but, like, in four movies or something, we're out of sight. Like, it's crazy how, like, he goes from this weirdo, I mean, he's got big names, but this weirdo, like, little indie thing to suddenly, like, working with George Clooney. Like, it's just, we're not far away from massive, massive stuff. And then I think he becomes a household name immediately, right? (laughs) Like, it's his, it's the success of that and making Clooney, you know, not that he had to try, but just, like, making Clooney, like, even cooler and, you know, even hotter and more of a commodity and yeah i think that'll bring soderbergh much more into uh, the mainstream consciousness well rescuing clooney from batman i mean rescuing clooney from from where he may have been headed you know i think that's yeah it's no no question so for all things Cinemakers and all things Soderbergh, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub. You can hear the other episode. I was I always say all the episodes that we've done, but the one other episode that we've done of this show so far or the other shows on our network and lots of fun free things for you to listen to and read about on cageclub.me and facebook.com slash cageclub. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Tobin Addington. And we'll see you next time on Cinemakers. Cinemakers.